0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theater's Clean Tech Pitch Fest, sponsored by the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored this evening by the Berkeley Chamber of Commerce and the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. So... We think that tonight's going to be an eye-opener for many of you. If you've heard of Berkeley Lab at all, or our other name, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, you probably still confuse us with Lawrence Livermore Lab, our neighbor to the east, or perhaps with the Lawrence Hall of Science, which is a museum that resides in the Berkeley Hills above us, or maybe still the University of California Berkeley campus, so, I'm here to tell you that we are none of these. We are our own singular dynamic center of public science managed by the University of California for the Department of Energy. And when I say public science, I'm saying that with a capital P. We exist to bring science solutions to the world, and we do so with your tax dollars. So, thank you very much for those. Now, there are a thousand examples I could give of why this is a worthy investment, but a good storyteller knows that sometimes it's better to show, not tell. And tonight, we're going to show you six of Berkeley Lab's very best. We're all familiar with that phrase, changing the world for the better. It's one of those cliches that you hear at beauty pageants that makes us all cringe. But at Berkeley Lab, I'm here to tell you that Scientists there say this and believe it every day, and better yet, they excel at proving it. We call this innovation with a conscience. Sure, we've won 13 Nobel prizes, and yes, we need commercial partners for our breakthroughs to bring them to market. And we are not the only institution doing clean tech research. The fact that there's a sem 7 meeting here in San Francisco today is evidence of that. But what distinguishes us, what makes us different, is that social profit and social responsibility are central to who we are and what we do. It's not part of a greenwashing campaign. So after tonight, when you hear that term, government scientist, I want you to think about the people you have seen here on this stage tonight and to be happy that these smart people are working on your behalf and on the planet's behalf as climate change accelerates. So in essence, what you think of us is our bottom line. Now to the event itself, to the fun part. You see this timer. It is marked at eight minutes. Our scientists have eight minutes to persuade you that their technology has the greatest social benefit. They've been working really hard to keep it under eight minutes, and I'm sure they will all succeed. But this being live theater, things can go awry. So to help them, we're going to ask you, the audience, when you see that at 30 seconds, if you would start applauding very softly. Now, we've been asked about prizes. Well, I just told you that we're tax-supported institution, there are no cash prizes. This is totally honest popularity contest. But it doesn't mean that your vote is unimportant. Scientists are people, too. Uh, they're working on your behalf. They would like to get positive feedback from you. Science can be lonely, nonlinear, and full of setbacks. And who knows, maybe one of you in the audience will be the key connection that turns one of these ideas into a commercial breakthrough. The voting. There will be opportunities for you to vote, obviously, at the end of the show. But we also, beyond the presentations themselves, we want to give you an opportunity to ask questions. So when all the presentations are complete, I will invite all the scientists back on stage. I'll ask them a few questions, and then we're going to open it up to the audience as well. So that's it for me, other than a few moments later. We're going to get to the real science now. So our first presenter is Shimei Suban who's going to try to persuade you that desalination is, or can be made, cheaper, cleaner, and more commonplace. Please give her a warm welcome. Thank you.
2: Thanks for the introduction. So the House of Cards is an excellent analogy for our existing water infrastructure. It works great if you don't disturb it. But in the face of global climate change, it's important that we replace it with something much more resilient, something that can adapt to changes in available resources, such as a drought. In fact, our water and energy infrastructures are very closely linked. We use water to produce energy, and we use energy to both pump and treat water. So the shortage of one clearly impacts the other. So here's an example. As a result of the drought, there was less hydroelectric power generated, but none of us ever heard about California's energy shortage. And that's because California has a very resilient energy infrastructure, one that relies on a variety of energy sources. Alternatively, what happened with water shortage was that the entire world heard about our water shortage and we all had to adapt to using less water, which means our water system is not sufficiently resilient. So let's look at water sources in California, freshwater sources, and how much energy they take. Of course, the cheapest energy, cheapest source of water, would be using fresh surface water, followed by groundwater, but that's a depleting resource. And then, some people in Southern California are using wastewater reuse as one of the options. It takes considerable energy. But as a coastal state, one of the things we always want to look for is seawater desalination to the sea. But seawater desalination is highly energy intensive. In fact, it's about 10 times as energy intensive as the fresh water we use today. So that's not a great option. You might have also heard in the news about transporting or trucking in water from neighboring states, but that takes quite a bit of energy as well. There's yet another option you may or may not have heard about, and that's brackish water desalination. Brackish water is slightly less salty than the seawater. So for example, to give you an idea, seawater contains half a cup of salt per gallon of water, while brackish water contains just about two and a half tablespoons of salt per gallon. Brackish water can have various origins. It occurs naturally in groundwater aquifers across the U.S. It can also be a result of seawater intruding groundwater. Here you see Salinas, California, where saltwater intrusion is moving further inland. And there's a third uh, way brackish water can be formed, and that's through groundwater pollution. In Central Valley, California, the use of fertilizers has resulted in excessive amounts of nitrates in groundwater, and the groundwater is not potable anymore, and that's what the people are protesting. So the brackish water has to be treated and desalinated prior to consumption. There are many different ways brackish water can be treated, but the existing technologies are not ideal. So the existing technologies The one that you might have heard of is reverse osmosis, or RO. First of all, it's very expensive. So what you see here is San Diego's new Carlsbad's RO plant. It costs $1 billion, and it serves just 7% of San Diego's drinking water. So it's very expensive, and besides being expensive, it's energy intensive. Whether you're treating slightly salty brackish water or very salty seawater, it takes a lot of energy, which is not ideal. And no matter what technology you use, in desalination there's always gonna be two outputs. One is fresh water that you care about, and the other is where the salt goes. It's the salty brine. You want to maximize the fresh water and minimize the brine. But unfortunately, in reverse osmosis, there's very low water recovery and very high amounts of brine produced. So there's a huge need and opportunity to develop technologies that are optimized for treating brackish water so it can be widely used. And what would such a technology look like? Well, it turns out it has to, uh, here's an example where the technology is powered by a solar panel. Ideally, you want a technology that's inexpensive by design, low capital and maintenance cost. It has to be energy efficient, where the efficiency is optimized for low salt treatment, so brackish water treatment. And of course, you want high water recovery and low amounts of waste. We're working on a technology that fits these categories, and I'm going to tell you how it works. So there are many different kinds of salts, but to explain my technology, I'm going to talk about just table salt. Table salt is made of sodium and chloride atoms, but when you put it in water, it forms sodium plus and chloride minus ions. And we can take advantage of the fact that these are charged and separate the salt from water based off of the charge. And here's how it works. So first step is to capture salt. We have these special polymers which have these nice pockets and tunnels that are lined with positive and negative charges. And these positive and negative charges attract oppositely charged ions, such as H plus and OH minus ions that we're familiar from water. When we put these polymers in salt water, the H plus ions exchange for sodium ions, and the OH minus ions exchange for chloride ions, and therefore, the salt is captured by the polymer. And these polymers are generally called ion exchange resins. So once they capture the salt, we need to discard the salt so the resin can be reused. And in order to do so, what we can do is re-exchange these salt ions for H plus and OH minus ions that we generate by splitting water. So both ion exchange resins and splitting water are well-known concepts. Our contribution has been in combining the two to develop a functioning desalination technology. And in order to do so, we've taken advantage of some of the special techniques developed at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, such as low temperature or near room temperature plasma processing. So here's how the technology works. Uh, I want to remind you again that water is made of H plus and OH minus ions. So to capture salt, we have two different kinds of resins, one that exchanges H plus for sodium ions, and the other that exchanges OH minus for chloride ions. So we flow salt water between these two resins, and the salt is captured by the resin. Once the salt is captured, we have to discard the salt And in order to do so, we use some energy and split water, which generates H plus and OH minus ions. As we generate more and more of these ions, the resin will discard the salt, forming a very concentrated brine that can be discarded. And once this happens, the system is ready to capture salt again, and the cycle can repeat. So we wanted to test this idea, and to turn this idea into a technology, we used several unique steps to build our prototype. We started from very inexpensive resins, turned them into tiny pieces, and once we made them into tiny pieces, we used our special plasma process, which helped us make functional electrodes, which were then put into a little prototype and tested. And here are our test results. We put salt water where we knew how salty the water going into the prototype was, and we measured how salty the water coming out of it was. So we're looking at, as a function of time, how the salinity changes. So the zero line with the yellow dash is the salt that goes into the system. When the system is capturing salt, the salt measured is lower than zero, and when the system is discarding salt, the salt amount is higher than zero. So here is three consecutive cycles of our unit functioning. The fact that we can repeat this, we confirm that our idea works. So although we've been talking about drought and water problems in California, the problem is much larger. In fact, 1.8 billion people in the world will face absolute water stress. And a majority of them will live in the developing world. Our technology is sufficiently versatile to be able to support... Our technology is sufficiently... Okay, I need 10 more seconds. So um, (laughs) our technology is sufficiently versatile to address their problems. It's made from low-cost materials. It can be scaled both up or down to support both communities and individuals. It is powered by renewables. It can be powered by renewables such as a solar panel. And most importantly, it has very high water recovery, which is crucial under water stress. And to conclude, using diverse sources of water is... Helpful in developing a much more resilient water infrastructure, and by efficiently desalinating brackish sources, we can make a difference. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, Chimay. I don't know. Should, I don't think we. I mean, I don't think we should assess her a penalty. I, I think we'll we'll give her a pass on that one. It wasn't too much over. Anyway, next up, Raymond Whitecamp who has a paint-on solution for energy efficiency. Please give Raymond. A warm welcome. Thank you.
3: Hi, I'm Raymond Weidekamp, and tonight I'm going to talk to you about the dark side of windows. So we use an enormous fraction of our energy on heating and cooling. So how many of you out there have a sunny room at home or work that's always hot? All right, quite a few, and I think you'll agree that while windows provide many benefits, they also present a number of challenges. Specifically, how can we keep that view without taking all of the heat that comes with it? So we're throwing 4% of US energy out the window, and we need a better solution. So what if you could apply a coating to the window that would allow the visible light to pass through, but effectively reflect the heat-carrying infrared light back to the sky? In warm climates, this would dramatically reduce the air conditioning requirements of homes and buildings. And this is because half of the sun's energy is in the form of infrared light. So by blocking it, we're efficiently blocking the heat. So even better, what if you could spray on that coating yourself without having to replace your windows? Widespread adoption of this solution could save 10% of U.S. electricity. And in terms of the CO2 emissions, that's like removing 5 million cars from the road. So this is sort of the window analog of painting your rooftop white and it can have a significant impact on energy savings. And this is not a new challenge. The problem is that the existing technologies are too expensive. So either they require the entire window to be replaced or a trained professional needs to come in to install the heat reflecting film. And as a result of this price tag, the transition to energy efficient windows is too slow. So currently, to install these in your homes, the payback time is about 10 years. This is why my collaborators and I are working on a do-it-yourself retrofit solution, because the labor is the majority of the cost. So we're gonna make that payback time one year instead of 10. So how do these films work? How can a material be transparent in the visible, but reflect infrared light? And the trick is to take advantage of resonance, which occurs when the wavelength of light matches a repeating periodic structure within the material. So we're gonna use many layers of transparent materials that are alternating periodically on the nanoscale to create a resonance between the infrared light that we wanna reflect and the geometry of the structure. So in this image, the wavelength is twice the period of the structure. So let's see resonance in action. So I'm going to show you a simulation. There's light uh, coming from the left and interacting with this multilayer film. And in the first simulation, the wavelength is too long. So we're off resonance and it can efficiently pass through the material. In the second simulation, we're also off resonance because the wavelength is now too short. So despite the fact that you'll see many reflections off of the many layers in this material, it too will ultimately pass through But, when the wavelength of light matches the period of the alternating structure, those reflections are now in sync. And so the resonant reflections add up, which means that most of the energy at this wavelength is now sent back towards the source. This is often referred to as structural color because the optical properties of the material are determined by the geometry and not by the incorporation of a pigment or a dye. So structural color is everywhere. nano scales on butterfly wings are responsible for many of their beautiful colors. As well, the iridescence of opal gemstones is due to the packing of silica nanospheres. And while many applications of structural color require high-precision engineering, we've been interested in leveraging self-assembly to let nature do the work for us. So the key driving force in self-assembly is surface energy. And this is best exemplified by oil and water, which will separate to minimize the contact between the two phases. Block copolymers are plastics that are composed of two different materials that are chemically linked together at a single point. So in a block copolymer, the oily half and the watery half can't separate. And so instead, they have to compromise and try to find a geometry that still minimizes that contact, which minimizes the surface energy. So, in this image, we're watching a block copolymer film as it goes from this disordered state and self assembles into this more ordered, alternating multilayer. So, this multilayer stack minimizes that energy uh, because it minimizes the area between the light and the dark regions of the image. And this is now starting to look familiar. However, if we use traditional linear block copolymers, it would be very difficult to make multilayer films capable of reflecting infrared light. And this is because infrared light has a very long wavelength, which requires us to make large domain multilayers. And to get those large domains, we need long polymers, which can entangle on themselves. And so that entanglement presents an energetic barrier to self assembly. And so as a result, these polymers typically require extreme processing conditions and have to be forced into assembling, into an ordered structure. So to imagine that, visualize trying to untangle your spaghetti dinner and reline up all of the noodles as if they had just come out of the box. Okay, so... What if we could reduce the entanglement? What if instead of untying spaghetti, we could just line up gummy worms? So in my PhD work at Caltech in the Grubbs group, we showed that by changing the architecture of the block copolymer, we could drastically reduce the entanglement. And this architecture is called a bottle brush polymer because it consists of a rigid main polymer chain with flexible polymer brushes that are hanging off of the sides. And as a result of this architecture, The entanglement is much lower because the molecules are more rigid, and we can self-assemble to films with very large domain sizes. Additionally, our molecular gummy worms can self-assemble at room temperature, which means that we can make paintable multi-layer films with resonant optical properties. So we've been able to use these bottle brush block copolymers to paint films with structural color that we can tune from the ultraviolet all the way across the visible spectrum into the infrared. However, there are still a number of challenges to realizing our heat-reflecting window spray. Specifically, if we took this exact film, uh, sorry, these exact polymers and tried to spray them, the resulting film would be too hazy to use in a real application. So with the support of an ARPA-E grant from the Department of Energy, we're working with collaborators from Caltech, CU Boulder, and Materia to take this from a lab discovery (laughs) to that heat-reflecting spray paint. Uh, So you guys threw me off there. If we're successful, plenty of time. If we're successful, in a couple of years, you'll be able to have your view and stay cool too. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Good job. Let's give that, one, skip that one. I thought I was going to have to explain a time distortion here, but we're clearly okay with Raymond. Uh, next up is Marcus Lehman, who's going to talk to us about the power of wave energy. Please
4: welcome Marcus. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you all for coming out tonight. I think this is always a great event. Take some time out of our busy days and to take a look at the big picture. I just watched the latest TED Talk from Al Gore, and the fact that struck me the most is that the World Economic Forum found that climate change is the number one risk for our global economy. And he concluded we're facing actually a moral challenge, and every local community needs to act to address this challenge. So the question I want to discuss with you tonight is how can San Francisco become self-sustaining? And yet, to fill all the electricity needs of San Francisco, we need around 1.3 gigawatts. And actually realized there's not a lot of space for wind and solar power, because San Francisco is entirely surrounded by the ocean. But the ocean also comes with a lot of great resources. And people definitely found ways how to have fun with ocean waves. But I want to show you today how we can use ocean waves to power homes and cities, and even fulfill our freshwater needs. And if we look at the global world map of uh, wave power, we can see San Francisco is actually one of the best locations for wave power. And on top of that, the resource has three main advantages. It's 30 times more power dense than wind power, so less land is required. It's less variable, so it's available day and night time. And it's more predictable. In fact, we know up to two weeks in advance how the resource would look like, other than wind and solar, which can change in the order of seconds, which is a very big challenge for the utilities. So we have this huge underutilized resource with its added benefits. But yet the industry of wave power is still compared to the industry of wind energy a decade ago, where many different technologies were investigated till then eventually the three-blade upwind design emerged as a standard. But for wave power, we don't have such a solution yet. And in a search for new solutions, Professor Lam from UC Berkeley was investigating a certain mud floor. We can see here on the left side yeah, the waves travel to shore until they entirely break. Whereas here on the right side, we can see there's this muddy region, and the waves suddenly disappear. So what happens here is, as the waves travel over the mud, the mud vibrates, and similar to a shock absorber, extracts all the energy. And then Professor Lam had the great idea, we can actually use the same principle to generate power. And I've been always passionate about renewable energies and started looking into new solutions since high school. And then when I first read about the concept, I saw the huge advantage of a system that can operate submerged, invisible and survivable at the same time. And so we started building first prototypes, um, the first one actually with a bike pump from another professor we still want to give credit to, and then eventually um, yeah, led to this design where you can see, similar to the mud floor, as the waves travel over this membrane, the membrane starts interacting with the wave and then we can bundle all the energy and the generators underneath um, and that can actually be used to produce power. And then we improved this design and here you can see quite a steep wave is coming in and in the back of the tank we have nearly a mere wave cancellation. And after that even people approached us and said this could be used for shore erosion. And so now we started looking into how would a full scale system look like. So we can see there is a floating version for offshore but another one that's closer to shore. And as the waves travel over we extract the energy and then could bring it to shore to produce electricity or also to produce desalination. So to summarize, the three main advantages of our technology is that it's more survivable because we're submerged. And that's actually one of the biggest challenges of the industry so far, is that on the surface, um, yeah, anything is exposed to the extreme events of winter storms. So the fact that we can dive away from these extreme events um, is a huge advantage. The second is a higher power output because we're using our patent absorption principle and the last one is, yeah, we're causing no visual pollution. That means we can be really close to the load centers other than offshore wind that has to go um, very far out to not um, yeah, disturb the landscape. And because of the state of the industry, the Department of Energy announced last year the U.S. Wave Energy Prize. And our team, together with 92 other teams, applied. And then the judges, um, after yeah, reviewing all the concepts and technical details, then invited the best 20 teams for tank testing and that was already a great moment for our team um, yeah, when we did the tank testing in January here, a short time lapse of our testing. Um, and then the judges took another look at the results of this tank testing and of our simulation data and yeah, the costs of the actual full system. And then this March, they finally announced the nine finalists, and that was a very exciting day for our team um, yeah, when we got the great news that we're actually selected to be among the nine finalists. And on top of that, we actually got the highest score among these nine. So now we're very excited. Yeah, to, um Thanks. yeah and now we're working on a, um, a bigger prototype um, that we actually have to submit in a couple of weeks, and then we'll be tested in Washington, D.C. Um, in this fall. And at the same time, we're also looking into first ocean demonstration. So let's imagine we place one of our units over an ocean beach in San Francisco. One unit would produce enough power to power 180 homes in the city um, and would save us 1,000 barrel oil per year. And coming back to our initial question, yet to cover the entire electricity needs of San Francisco, around 33 miles of the California coastline are actually powerful enough to provide the entire power needs. But I think, um, yeah, similar to a good farmer, the future of a sustainable city lies in the utilization of all local available resources. So for San Francisco, this will be solar power, wind power, as well as wave power and other renewables. Yeah, and to close off with, um, yeah, I just watched a movie from uh, Josh Fox and one of the researchers there stated, um, yeah, to address the big challenge of climate change, we need something... Um, yeah, more advanced. We need more approaches, and and he was referring to something called um, he called moral imagination, and that's why we're very excited to be um, and very grateful to be supported by the cycling road program as part of the national lab, um, as well as UC Berkeley and our industry partners, because they all yeah built the framework and the resources to make that possible. And I think for San Francisco, actually, this challenge can also be a big opportunity to become yeah, a global lighthouse of a fully sustainable. Um, yeah, city of the 21st century. And at the same time, yeah, I also selected the picture uh, to give you an idea how the landscape would look like actually after our device is deployed. <laughs> Thank you very <Robert. laughs> much.
1: Thank you, Marcus. So our, our next presenter, Jeff Urban, um, is going to be speaking about one of my favorite topics, metal organic frameworks, but sadly he's going to has to leave after the presentation. He will be unavailable for Q&A, so please listen very closely. Uh, we I will give you uh, an address later in the evening where you can send questions about metal organic frameworks. So please welcome Jeff Urban. Thank you.
5: Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. Um, so I think What you're hearing tonight is really just a a huge diversity of opinions, but the thing we all share in common as citizen scientists is really this duty, we feel, uh, to to help human flourishing and make the world a better place. And what I'm going to tell you about is really one of the key problems that confronts us just societally. It still remains true, despite all the renewables and penetration of those, that over 90% of the world's energy is generated by carbon-intensive sources. Okay? So this is a magnitude of a problem that we're dealing with. So if you just think about an average commuter, you know, I just you know, went to the grocery store and came back. We're not doing anything serious here. We're not driving to LA every day. Um, you're thinking about four tons of CO2 per year. Now, what this means in terms of impact, uh, according to my calculation literally on the back of an envelope, Um, this is about a volume of 42 feet. Now, I just looked around this theater, and it strikes me that this is maybe of that similar dimension in every direction. So if you think about you, your neighbor, everyone in your row, producing this volume of CO2, and this is not a huge theater, you start to grasp the impact of this, right? So globally, what does this mean? 32 gigatons, which is a number that itself, this almost seems like a made-up word, right? What does that mean? So that's a a billion tons. So if you had a million tons, you would need a 1,000 of those to get to one gigaton. So overall, this would be like, I know we don't really have snow here unless you go to Tahoe, but it would be like if you were six feet deep in fresh powder of CO2 over the entire United States. That is the magnitude of what we're dealing with. Okay, That's a problem. So the problem is made manifest here in this chart over time. I won't belabor this because there are plenty of documentaries and movies that go over this, but this is really just over time our historical concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. And you know, I'm not here to uh, sort of change any minds on this topic, and I'm, I'm definitely not Al Gore, but uh, what you can see is that we're having an influence. And the nature of that influence, uh, I think almost certainly, is not great. I think we can agree on that. So how do we go about thinking about this problem of CO2 and mitigating it? Here's your average 500 megawatt power plant, right? And this is good, at least if you like to charge your devices, if you like to make PowerPoint presentations. It's something we all collectively just agree to do as part of human society. And the problem with that is that the CO2 problem, right? And what's best practice today is called uh, amine scrubbing. Now, the details of that is sort of captured by this little diagram here. Now, the, the reality or the scientific basis for this is just that amines, nitrogen-rich compounds, you can think of fertilizer if you want. Some of these materials actually look quite similar in terms of chemical structure. They bind the CO2 very, very well. Okay? Now, they bind it so well, in fact, that it takes a lot of heat and thermal energy to release it. Now, this is, in a way, useful because you can release it when you want to, right? And you can capture CO2, which is good. In a way, it's not useful because it requires a huge amount of energy in order to do that. So if you want your clean skies when you're using carbon, and again, I hope we transition to less carbon-intensive fuels, but reality is this is where we are now as as the globe. So what do you do with that CO2? You can either put it back into the Earth. um, You can think about fossilizing it, essentially, making minerals. I mean, Michelangelo's David is actually made out of calcium carbonate. Or turning it into fuels. This is actually the next talk by Kendra Kuhl will tell you about this. But the problem with all of these approaches is that you're putting about a 40% financial penalty on the energy that you're generating just because it binds CO2 so strongly and requires so much thermal energy to release it. So the reality is that these aren't really implemented very widely. So, what can we do? There is actually a passive way to separate things that you want from things that you don't want. And sort of, I would wager that probably 95% of the audience goes through this process every morning. Um, This is called filtration, or the scientific version of this is a membrane. Uh, If you want, you can be a a membrane caffeine specialist or something like that if you want to really impress your family later. Uh, And the idea here is that we have pore sizes or gaps or openings in our membranes of just the size that we can separate out what we'd really like to put into our bodies or take use of, you know, coffee, obviously in this case. Maybe I need some. Um, and sort of leave behind everything else that you're not really interested in. So in the case of a power plant, which emits all kinds of nitric oxide, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen, water, nitrogen, I mean, all kinds of other byproducts, there's plenty to separate out, okay? And that's actually part of the problem for CO2 separations, is that when you're feeding it this sort of toxic brew that's coming out of there, it's very, very hard to isolate the CO2, which is what you'd really like to do work with, Okay? Now, what we've done in the lab, and the sort of invention that I'm going to tell you about, is using these specifically designed chemical frameworks. These are called metal-organic frameworks. You can think of these like sponges. They are open networks, and they have metal sites and they have atoms in them placed just so to bind carbon dioxide lightly, not strongly, and to give them kind of a pathway for which they can move through molecules. Uh, sorry, move through uh, move through membranes. So our idea was we put these molecules, these moth molecules, into standard membranes to really optimize our filters for CO2. That was the big idea. Okay. So the reality was a bit trickier than that. That sounds just totally easy. Why, why isn't everybody doing this? Why am I here? Uh, well, MOFs, much like Chin- Chinny showed you in the first talk, are basically salts. They're, you just crystallize them at room temperature. So it's really, really hard to think about how you would pour industrial mixtures through that and do anything useful. So our magic in my lab is really making hybrid materials, and for that we're taking plastics, you can think of Play-Doh, it's fine, I'm not judging. Uh, and you can mix these together, and if you do it and get the chemistry just right, you can make test membranes like this. Okay. Now with this membrane, what you can do is something very, very interesting. You can still be very selective for grabbing CO2, but you can get a lot more going through. Right? We've done basically an eight-fold enhancement just by putting the moths into a standard sort of commercial-ready membrane. And this is getting close. This is our, really just our first set of experiments, and this is something we're carrying on in our lab. But we're not far away in phase space from being competitive with this process, just at a very, very low energy price. So how this really manifests uh, is just shown here in this movie. And we have these little pathways of these metal-organic frameworks, these moths, these sponges through here, that give highways that are very, very selective for CO2. It would be like if you had sort of a fast pass, Uh, you would be able to go back and forth on the highway with greater ease while everybody else is clogged up in a traffic jam. This is an analogy we can all appreciate, um, I think, here in the Bay Area. So this is really the vision for how these work and how these scale up, and you can really integrate them directly to a power plant with much lower footprint. Uh, A lot of the Amine scrubbers actually are almost uh, sort of comparable to the size of the stacks themselves. So what this means in summary is that when we're doing our energy generation, if we're able to implement these CO2 selective membranes, what we can do is we can basically strongly mitigate this 40% energy penalty and maybe get rid of it. And what that does is that decreases you know, the price of our energy, which is great, and also mitigates the carbon intensity of it, which is something I think we can all agree on is really just a better way to live. So thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Wait, please stay. So since Jeff has to leave, I want to ask him one question. Could you tell the audience... Okay, could you tell the audience... Uh, if, 42. No. All right. Okay, if sorry. we had uh, a football field covered with, let's say, a, a foot deep of, of CO2... Yeah, have, run, run. No, 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 no. Yeah. How big a container are we talking about that contains moths? Would it need to, to put all of that inside, that cage, the moth cage? Are we talking about something the size of a car, something the size yeah. of a pill bottle? What yeah.
5: Yeah, the intuition really breaks down at this length scale, and what you have to understand is these things are all surface area. I mean, they are, they are really nanoscale sponges. Um, so what you'd actually need is a, a shockingly small amount. You would just need a few grams, a few crystals. I mean, you could just place it in your hand. That's so it? That's, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, keep so. that in mind for the voting later. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. So... Following this, we're going to now hear from Kendra Cool, who's going to talk about recycling of CO2, which is something I don't think any of you have probably heard about before. Please welcome Kendra.
6: Thank you. So if you're like most Americans, especially if you're from the Bay Area, you're probably very good at recycling. Each year, Americans make around 250 million tons of trash, but we're able to recycle about 25% of that. That's 60 million tons of paper, cardboard, plastic, gla- and glass that never go into the landfill. Instead, these resources are recycled for, um, for their efficient use, and it's a beneficial thing for the environment. Unfortunately, there are other waste streams that we've completely ignored. We produce about 20 times more carbon dioxide each year than we do trash, and we currently are just throwing that away into the atmosphere. So we just heard about how we can start to capture that carbon dioxide. What my colleagues and I are working on is a way to recycle it back into chemicals and fuels. So there's a reason that many people feel that fossil fuels rock. (laughs) They're very abundant, they're energy dense, and they're very stable. And we've used fossil fuels over the last 150 years, we've developed many processes to turn these materials into the chemicals and more refined fuels that we currently rely on. Unfortunately, when we extract the energy from these fossil fuels, we end up emitting carbon dioxide, which is accumulating in the atmosphere and causing environmental damage due to the rapid changes in climate that it causes. What we're working on is a way to recycle that carbon dioxide back into the exact same chemicals and fuels that we currently use using renewable electricity as an energy source. <clears throat> so if we can do this and start to use recycled carbon dioxide as a source of these chemicals and fuels, then we'll reduce or even eliminate our need to, to extract more fossil fuels, which reduces our overall new CO2 emissions. Um, one of the things that we as a group would like to do is start to challenge the way that we think of carbon dioxide as an unwanted waste product and instead start to think of it as the most basic building block that we can use to make the compounds that we rely on every day. One of our technical challenges is to reduce the amount of energy that we need for this process. And so we're using catalysts to get as close as we can to the thermodynamic limit for, this, for energy use in this process. So I'll just walk you through how the catalyst works. We have water and carbon dioxide molecules When those water and carbon dioxide molecules interact with the metal catalyst surface in the presence of electricity, then the molecules break apart into carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen atoms. Those atoms then recombine to make the molecules that that compose chemicals and fuels. So far, we've shown that we can make 16 different compounds with this process. And these are materials that span everything from common household supplies all the to, pol- to polymer precursors that make up plastics and fuels. <clears throat> to determine which of those many compounds that we make, we also use catalysts. So we de- the, ca- the product is determined by the identity of the metal that we make the catalyst from, by the size of those nanoparticle metal catalysts, and by their shape. So this is a picture of metal nanocubes that we made at the molecular foundry at Berkeley Lab And what our data indicates is that the edges of these cubes are very good at coupling carbon atoms together. And so these catalysts end up being very good for making ethanol and ethylene. And by using other metals, other sizes, and other shapes, we can make the other products that I showed earlier. Now that we have a catalyst, we also need to put put those catalysts into a reactor. And the reactor makes the optimal conditions for carbon dioxide recycling, such as the temperature and the pressure. For the reactor, we're using an existing design. So this is a picture of an industrial reactor that's currently used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. By removing the water-splitting catalysts from this reactor and replacing them with carbon dioxide recycling catalysts, we can quickly make a very efficient carbon dioxide recycling process. So this reactor design has many advantages. It's been used for the last 50 years, and so we have the ability to manufacture it very efficiently and the cost has come down quite a lot. It's also compatible with renewable and intermittent electricity sources. We can attach this directly to a wind wind turbine or solar panel in order to recycle carbon dioxide. It's also very powerful and compact. So the heart of this reactor is an electrochemical stack, four of which are circled here. In each one of those stacks, we have the carbon dioxide conversion power of 37,000 trees. That's like 64 football fields of dense forest in a suitcase-sized reactor. (laughs) I know, right? So this is our current prototype that we've made in the Cyclotron Road program at Berkeley Lab. Uh, But we don't want to just be recycling carbon dioxide in the lab. We want to deploy this technology out into the real world. And so over the next few months, we're going to be scaling up to a reactor of an intermediate size between our current prototype and the industrial scale reactor that I showed earlier. And and then that will be a launching point for the the next couple years, getting to that industrial scale. In in anticipation of deploying this technology, we've started to talk to potential early adopters of carbon dioxide recycling, and we found that they fall into three often overlapping buckets. There are currently producers of carbon dioxide that are just emitting that CO2 into the atmosphere, and they would like to be able to utilize that resource instead of throwing it away. These are places like fermentation facilities that are currently making ethanol, cement production, and existing oil and gas refineries. We've also talked to potential users who have excess renewable electricity, There are times when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but electricity demand is not that high. And so this would be a place where we can use that renewable electricity that we're generating during those times. We also have talked to users who need the chemicals and fuels that we're producing. So there are some disadvantages to the current way we make chemicals, which is with very large infrastructure and very high capital costs. So our, our technology has advantages that we can do it on all scales and at potentially lower capital cost. It's also an alternative and greener way of making these materials. So essentially, we can recycle carbon dioxide back into the same chemicals and fuels that we're currently using with just the most simple inputs, carbon dioxide, water, and electricity. We've shown that we can make many household products, Acetone is the main component found in nail polish remover. Ethylene glycol is used to make antifreeze. And acetic acid is found in many cleaning solutions. We can also make plastics. We can make ethylene, which is a precursor to polyethylene, one of the most commonly used plastics. By making plastic out of carbon dioxide, we're essentially sequestering that CO2 because these plastics (coughs) essentially are permanent. They don't degrade very well we can also make a number of fuels. Methane is the main component found in natural gas. Um, Ethanol is blended with gasoline for use in cars and other uh, engines. And we can make diesel fuel and methanol from syngas. So I'll just leave you finally with this quote from Buckminster Fuller. Pollution is nothing but the resources we're not harvesting. We allow them to disperse because we've been ignorant of their value. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Wait, so did you forget something? I, I found this backstage.
6: So, so. This, is, this, is a, this is our current reactor prototype that we'll be scaling up over the next couple months.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you. So how about a round of applause for the first five Berkeley Lab scientists? We're going to bring out our sixth one. How about some applause now for the first five, okay? Thanks. Our final presenter for the evening... He's going to talk to you about a wonderful new car app called My Green Car. His name is Sam Saxena. Please welcome Sam. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, everyone.
0: We believe the transition to a sustainable future requires small but smart decisions by millions of individuals. Let's talk about one of those decisions, Put yourself in the shoes of someone looking to buy a car. Maybe you want to make the green choice, and so you're thinking about a hybrid over a conventional car. But if you're like me, you need to think about your pocketbook. As you're shopping around, you can see right up front that the greener cars often have a higher sticker price. You can narrow your options for the car that's right for you, based on things you can see up front, like the seating capacity, the spaciousness, the towing capacity, which cars have a sleek look, and even more. How green a car is, and how much money you'll save from being green, however, is uncertain. It depends on how you drive, how hard you accelerate and brake, how far you go every day, how much traffic you get stuck in, what hills you go up and down, and more. And so you're left wondering, is the green car really right for me? I argue the uncertainty in the value of green is a barrier to choosing a green car. But if you're thinking about buying an EV, that uncertainty takes on a whole added dimension range anxiety. You need to know for the way you want to drive your car, will you ever be in danger of running out of charge and getting stranded? Perhaps you want to know, do you need to charge at work to make your trips? Or if you forget to plug in your car one day, or if some jerk parks in your parking spot at work and you can't charge, can you still make your trips? So once again, the uncertainty is a barrier to choosing the green car. Wouldn't it be nice if the value of picking a green car or the range of the electric car for your driving were as clear as all the other things you think about when buying a car, like the sleek look or the number of seats? Wouldn't it be nice if you could get a virtual test drive to compare all the cars that you're thinking about for your driving? We are developing the solution. My green car is a technology that takes the uncertainty out of buying a green car. As a user, you simply install the app, choose all the cars that you're interested in, drive around in whatever car you have today, and the system computes for all the cars you're thinking about how they would stack up for your driving. We want to make my green car as easy and intuitive as Fitbit, but for people looking to buy a car. It sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, it's just an app, after all. Thank you for the laughter. It's really difficult, actually. <laughs> what happens behind the scenes is really where the magic happens. Let's think about what happens in a car while it's driving. You have sinks of power and energy, such as aerodynamic drag, rolling resistance and driveline losses, the power needed to accelerate you or drive you up a hill, and a lot more. To overcome all these sinks so that you can drive forward, you need power. Depending on the type of car you want to buy, the power can come from an internal combustion engine, a collection of motors and batteries, um, a fuel cell, or time varying combinations of all of these. So, for my green car, We need mathematical models to describe the sources and sinks of power, but for any possible driving condition by any possible driver. We have created that. Roughly speaking, we follow three steps. We need to formulate the models to figure out the right equations for each type of vehicle. We need to calibrate the models so that a particular set of equations describes one particular car then we need to validate our calibrated models to prove that they're sufficiently accurate for the vast majority of driving conditions. Where it gets harder, though, there are nearly 1,200 unique vehicle models released every year by many different manufacturers. And so our equations need to be calibrated so that they're accurate for all these vehicles in any possible driving condition by any driver. Sounds tough, right? It is. There's hope, though. We've been working hard on my green car for quite a while. So far, we've formulated and calibrated vehicle physics models for almost 5,000 individual cars, covering almost all cars from model years 2010 to 2016. we focused extensively on validating our vehicle physics models against on-road and chassis dynamometer measurements It's an effort that we're doing in partnership with our colleagues across the DOE National Labs and the EPA. We have prototypes of our Android and iPhone apps, which are in the hands of many testers who have recorded tens of thousands of miles, thousands of hours, and thousands of individual trips. We've developed easy and intuitive visualization systems so that any user can see how any car they're thinking about compares for their driving at a glance. And we're transitioning our server systems to Berkeley Lab's supercomputers so that we can handle the computational requirements from millions of people using our system when they're looking to buy a car. So in other words, we're putting the power of DOE's supercomputers into the hands of car buyers to take the uncertainty out of choosing a green car. Our team's objective is to accelerate the deployment of green cars. With this social impact focus, we've partnered and are working closely with the US EPA and DOE who see my green car as the pathway to the next generation of fuel economy labeling for all cars and a way to remove range anxiety as a concern for EV car buyers and owners. The EPA runs a website called fueleconomy.gov, which gets 50 to 55 million unique users every year. In partnership with EPA and DOE, we're working hard to bring My Green Car to all these users, so we're fortunate to already have a captive audience and a channel to reach that audience. Our ultimate goal, is to help every car buyer understand the environmental benefit, fuel savings, and payback time they would achieve in any car they're thinking about for their own driving. In other words, we're bringing science solutions into the hands of every car buyer to take the uncertainty out of choosing a green car. We're not just creating another app. We're not even creating an app that you would use every day. We're creating an app and a system that takes the uncertainty out of a critical decision point, the car buying process, which has long-lasting implications on energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. We're creating an app to empower millions of individual people, fleet operators, utilities, and everyone else who thinks of buying a car to make the small, smart, and long-lasting choices towards that sustainable future.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Stay, stay, because at this point, we're going to bring some chairs out and bring all the scientists out, and we will begin our Q&A session. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Ah, beautiful. So in no particular order, I'm just going to ask a few questions, and then you guys be thinking about what you want to ask, and you can start even lining up if you'd like. Um, Let's start with Sam since he was last. Um, No venture capital involved so far. Is that by choice? Um, Are you, um, and you chose to work with the EPA and not to make money off this? Is this a public science at its very best? (laughs) So, actually,
0: um, you're asking me about something that caused me to lose many, many nights of sleep. (laughs) So I'm going to explain that a little bit. Um, You know, when we developed my green car and... Uh, we were fortunate to be accepted into uh, doe 's Lab core program and went through a process of market discovery and We had amazing support from our tech transfer office, uh, which sort of shepherded us through the process and From what we learned, we actually did pitch my green card to um, some of america 's top accelerators, and we were accepted and Pitched to venture capital firms and got term sheets. And heck, I even went through the process of uh, searching long and hard for a prospective co-founder who uh, we, we found one. And, uh, you know, he was amazing. Um, but ultimately, this whole process of, of VC funding and, and so on forced a set of conversations with the EPA and a little bit of soul searching as to what we want to do with my green car. Um, you know, my objective behind the project was to get out there to as many people as possible. And the channel that EPA and DOE present to get out there to, to everyone to make an impact is just almost unparalleled. So we respectfully said no to the VCs. Um, but, you know, at the time, um, a lot of soul searching, like I said. Um, there may be one in the audience right now. You know? uh, maybe there's one in the audience. So, you know, and if there is one in the audience, let me just say that although we said no at the time, <laughs> 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 we, we really want to make an impact. And I kind of recognize that you know, there's probably the opportunity to maximize our impact once we deploy through the federal channel, through fueleconomy.gov and others Actually, there's a lot of different applications of my green car, some of which could really be nicely commercialized. So,
1: okay. And I'm not going to give them necessarily in the order that we're seated, but but Kendra, I do have one for you <laughs> right now. Um, you showed the symbol for Cyclotron Road in your presentation. Um, I don't know that folks really think of the lab as being particularly entrepreneurial, but could you explain to them what exactly that is?
6: Yeah. So Cyclotron Road is a new program at the lab. Um, and I guess the idea is that it helps scientists like me who are doing you know, potentially transformative technologies in the lab, but it gives us a pathway to get those technologies out into the real world. Um, it's, it's easy to get funding to do basic research, but it's hard to get support to build a prototype. Um, and so that's what the program provides, is space and funding and expertise to help you get to that prototype, which is really the key that you need to get to the next step and get outside investment and start to use the technology in the real world.
1: (laughs) Okay, so regarding recycled CO2, how much actually has to be captured to make this economical sense?
6: Um, The good thing about the economics is we don't really need to capture that much CO2. Um, Actually, the smallest markets for CO2 recycling have the highest profit margins. Um, and so even if we're able to recycle a small amount of CO2, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, of course, my goal is to recycle a lot of CO2 because that's where we can actually start to have an impact on emissions and climate change.
1: And lastly, so plastic, as I understand, could become a good thing if, we, if it's...
6: Right. Because it so, doesn't
1: degrade if it's made of the right components.
6: Right. You think of plastic now, it's like horrible, it never degrades, you want to recycle it because it's filling up the landfill, but it could also be a way to store a lot of CO2 that's in the atmosphere in a, a pretty permanent way. Um, so that could be yeah, benefit.
1: Okay. All right, I'm going to skip down to Raymond. Um, I don't really mm. like going to Home Depot, but <laughs> do, you, do you imagine, all right, I, is there going to be a can that I could spray on a window? Is it one can per window? How is this going to work?
3: Yeah, that's the, I, the ideal application is, yeah, just go to Home Depot and pick it up. <laughs>
1: Is it one can per window?
3: Or? That's a good question. We haven't calculated that. We have to make the can first.
1: Okay. And uh, it's not going to clump up, right? It's going to spread evenly and nice. You can do it in place.
3: Yeah, that's what uh, RPE is uh, paying us for. So they, they call this uh, high risk, high reward. So we're, we're working on it. Okay. We'll be, we'll be looking for that at Home Depot quite soon. Uh,
1: markets. Uh, the mix, you, you talked about the renewable mix, uh, wave power. So what percentage do you envision, I mean, really, in San Francisco, but maybe nationally even? How, how much can that actually help us? What percentage, do you suppose?
4: I think for the U.S., actually, it's a very um, interesting resource. Um, I think the Department of Energy just did a resource assessment and found that it's up to 50 million homes in the U.S. 50 million? 50 million homes, the, the um, yeah, technical recoverable um, resource. And so that's the one that's really accessible by devices. Okay. And what's quite interesting, I think just a couple weeks back in, in Europe, they had a negative electricity price um, because yeah, they couldn't really foresee what's happening with wind and solar. And that's where we see the yeah, big advantage of fitting into a, a bigger mix.
1: OK, great,
4: thanks. Uh, Shimei,
1: do you yeah. have any idea how much brackish water there is like, in the middle of the country that might be turned into drinkable water?
2: So um, the estimated amount of saline groundwater, just to give you an idea, is about 3,500 Olympic pools for every person in America. That's how much saline groundwater exists in the U.S. But a lot. That's a lot, exactly. So um, what exactly the salinity of each source and how deep it is has to be clearly surveyed, which is ongoing. But even if a small fraction of that Were it to be lower salinity, I think our technology could contribute to a significant amount of water being treated.
1: Is this true for, like, reclaimed agricultural water as well?
2: Yeah, anything, wherever you have charged ions or salt, it could be domestic wastewater, it could be agricultural wastewater, whatever it is, can be treated with the technology. It doesn't have to be just brackish.
1: All right, let's open it up to some audience questions now. So I'm sure that uh, we have a gentleman right here. So, uh, please speak up and again remember short, pithy, no preambles. We are from Berkeley, we're used to this, but. Uh, two questions. One for the uh, migraine car would that have spotted the VW? <laughs> would your data have spotted that? And then the question for the wave generation is I keep trying to track wave generation worldwide, and the projects just come and then fall into a black hole. So, how can I track your project?
0: So uh, shall I take this first? You? Why yeah, I say, "My not first? Okay. Well, I don't know. We've got to get it out there uh, to people, and uh, you know, we're in conversations to see all of the different ways that my green car can be applied, you know, apart from just helping individual car buyers. The way that I see it is that we've got to get it out there first, and then, and then we can look at the bigger applications.
1: Okay, and the other question was for Marcus, right?
4: Yeah, you find us on the Cyclotron Road homepage. There is a link to our project page uh, with details. And then also if you search for U.S. Wave Energy Prize and then look at the teams, there is a list of the the nine finalists and also our ranking.
1: I should add that uh, Kendra, Raymond, and Marcus are all part of Cyclotron Road. There are are other people here today, and they probably start applauding if I say Cyclotron Road, right? (laughs) (laughs) Here they are over there. Okay. Uh, Next question over here. Yeah, my questions are regarding environmental impact. Uh, like, for instance, uh, you know, we know that the current wave, or excuse me, the uh, wind generation is having an impact on wildlife. Have you done any uh, any uh, studies on the potential impact of wave generation on uh, marine life? And also uh, related uh, for the sal- desalinization uh, do you have an environmentally uh, secure way of, of taking that brine and, and disposing it? Mm-hmm.
4: That, that's a very good and important question. We're following closely the research done by uh, the Northwest Pacific uh, Marine Laboratory. They're looking very close into environmental impact of renewables and marine hydrokinetics. And I think the challenge you, you mentioned with wind power and same with tidal energy is that mammals can't actually see fast-moving blades. And in our case, um, yeah, we don't have any fast-moving components. So the, the fastest-moving component is really in the same speed as the wave. So we don't see a, a big hazard there because, yeah, like, whales, for example, in, in California, grail waves, they're, they're used to um, piers and other yeah, stationary um, objects.
2: Um, you bring up a very good point. So the big challenge with desalination is what do you do with the brine. And ideally, what you want to do is minimize how much brine you produce. That way you could either transport the brine to be used for other chemical processes, or you can dry it. So the more concentrated the brine, the better. So um, there's no real way to get rid of the salt. There is going to be salt in the end. It's just a matter of whether we can find alternative uses for it. That's, you know, so you can concentrate it and treat it easier than having a dilute brine. That's where the status of brine treatment is at this point.
1: Thank you for your question. Uh, Next question here. Hi, this
0: is a uh,
5: question for all of you up there. What is your favorite piece or uh, your favorite piece of clean technology for the home?
3: (laughs) Group? Uh, I'll I'll start. Uh, It's the power wall. Because Elon Musk managed to get people to like go berserk for batteries.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other any others? No?
6: I, I like fluorescent light bulbs. They're easy to use.
0: I, I'm I'm you know, it catch I had uh, eight more minutes to prepare for everything than you, so I'm actually just going to build on your response. My, my wife just uh, bought LED light bulbs the other day, and I kind of freaked out, because I was like, you know, they're like $10 more expensive than the fluorescent ones, but actually they're really nice. I think I might keep
1: these ones. That's the right answer, Sam. <laughs> anyone else have anything you'd
4: like to talk about? Is there their favorite? Marcus? I, I really like, I think solar thermal is quite under estimated for heating... And in general, I'm, I'm a big fan of silverware instead of plastic utensils. <laughs> <laughs> Very easy, but straightforward. Anyone else? Low-tech low solutions.
2: Well, um, Nest for mm-hmm. you know yeah. home okay. temperature regulation. So.
1: Right. Thank you for question. Uh, next question over here.
5: Uh, yeah, question about the wave generator. Um, how does the cost of that technology, when you
1: include the cost of installation in the ocean? compared to other renewables and to fossil
6: fuels?
4: Yeah, that's a very important question, and um, that was actually the reason why the department um, is now running the Wave Energy Prize to cut exactly the cost of electricity into half. So you can only win the prize, and I think all the nine finalists are actually um, yeah, checking this criteria to cut the current cost of electricity into half of the state-of-the-art. Right. And So how where it exactly fits into, I mean, if you look at the um, different states in the U.S., there are, Let's look at uh, Alaska. There's 50 cents per kilowatt- hour. Hawaii is 36 or, um, in, in this range. So it, it depends on which stages um, the technology go through in, in the very beginning. That's what I'm really interested in, how I actually got solar and wind to the level now that uh, wind is uh, yeah, cheaper than f- fossil fuels or sometimes even negative um, price. So that it's just a stage of uh, um, yeah, when you look into the life cycle of a technology. Do you
5: have a projection for what a commercialized version of your system would cost?
4: So that depends on the location. Um, as you said, the installation are a big part of the cost in general with any offshore um, investigation. So it, it really depends on like the vessel availability and, and the general cost there for installation. So it's not a, the one-fits-all answer to that.
1: Great. Thank you for your question. Next one here.
4: Yeah. Um, My question is about the CO2 capture and utilization. Now, our expert for the capture has already left, but maybe, Kenra, you also have some knowledge about um, how that works. And what I'm interested in knowing is how much energy do you need to first capture the CO2 and then utilize it and compare to how much energy you got out for producing the CO2 in the first place?
6: I, I'm not completely sure for the capture part of it, but for the utilization part, um, I can tell you. So you know, fossil fuels, they are very energy-dense, and we get that energy out when we, when we make CO2 in the process. In order to recycle the CO2, we have to put that same amount of energy or a little bit more back in. So it is a fairly energy-intensive process
1: yeah hi this question is for ray um, you've described some great um, some great sounding opportunities for a, a very marketable opportunity for a spray on so, uh, solution for painting windows. Have you thought of any other sol- any other potential applications for a spray on compound that would arrange itself in very neat rows like you described with your with your with your current application
3: uh, yeah so it's a great question um, and actually In many ways, the window application that I talked about is probably the hardest (laughs) possible thing to go after because you have to get to very large domains and they have to be really perfectly ordered so that there's no haze in the window. So pretty much anywhere where you want to select sort of one color over another, um, there could be applications. So uh, one thing that would be really easy for us to do that we've talked about would be uh, to block ultraviolet light because we can make films that are really great at reflecting UV. And so um, actually, you know, pretty much anything that sits outdoors needs to be protected from, from UV light. So paints all have antioxidants in them. Outdoor, you know, plastic structural materials all have... UV stabilizers and things like that and and you could imagine uh, instead of putting something into the volume of that that would keep it from degrading you would just coat the surface of that to block the ultraviolet light so that one might be a lot easier
1: Alright thank you all for your questions now for the moment of truth could we have the slide with our instructions okay where's Wolf Blitzer in the magic wall Uh, okay so you're texting to 22333 And let's run through. You text BLCT1 for desalination. BLCT2 for the do-it-yourself efficient windows that we hope to see at Home Depot someday. (laughs) Energy from waves is BLCT3. Yes, I see you, Raymond. Uh, Nanoscale sponges, (laughs) Jeff Urban, who was unable to stay with us, sadly. BLCT4. The recycling of CO2, BLCT5, and my green car, BLCT6. So you may begin your voting. And it's percentages; it's not going to be um, individual <laughs> votes. So this is a pretty competitive brunch, uh-huh. I will say. You, can you just vote for, vote for one, no, yes. Just but isn't that nice that you thought that some more than <laughs> one was worthy? So, Jeff, this is why you locked
3: our phone away Hmm. back
1: here? Yes. (laughs) I'm not allowing them to vote. It's
2: gone.
1: I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Ross, could we get the screen? We had a malfunction, malfunction. Here we go, here we go. No, you need the instructions again. They need the instructions again, Ross. (laughs)
0: Oh, We've man. now
5: influenced the voting process. It's like primaries you
1: and colleges here.
5: <laughs> oh
1: no! My God! Look at that's a close. Oh, oh. Kendra is killing oh. us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. Nice. Okay. Settling down, but oh, it's close. <laughs> so very close.
2: Where? Where? <laughs> this gentleman has no doubt, but that's, up up that that that's right there. Marcus.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Maybe we should do our primaries like this. would <laughs> be a lot quicker. Still some movement, still some movement.
2: Now, how do you vote without a spark <laughs> Raise your hand. <laughs> no, I'm just and kidding. You can
1: raise your hand. You know, in Berkeley, we have to provide paper ballots. I didn't think we had to do that here. But um, <laughs> you can tell us afterwards, or you can speak with a scientist afterwards. Oh, we're still settling down.
2: Ooh, just a
1: Oh. No. <laughs> Ross, did we make sure that people couldn't vote twice?
2: Yeah, I
6: know.
1: We did? Okay, good. Seems to be a lot, a lot of late deciders. <laughs>
2: All
1: right. I'm going to... Call this election (laughs) done in ten seconds. Oh! (laughs) What is going on? The election is now over. The winner (laughs) is Raymond (laughs) Whitecamp.
5: Very close race.
1: It says cyclotron road people. I know they're out there doing something. They figured this out. They game the system. Thank you. Uh, we're the, the evening's over. Thank you, San Francisco. Thank you, Berkeley Lab scientists. You've been a great audience. Really appreciate it. Hope you've enjoyed it. Ah, before you go. Communications.lbl.gov, if you ask, want to ask questions about any of this, particularly about the Jeff Urban uh, MOPS, since he was unable to stay. So communications.lbl.gov, or at lbl.gov. And uh, thank you all again for coming. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University
0: of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.